Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Jimmy Rowe, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. I'm here with Dr. Kostenberger, and today we're talking about the new edition of his hermeneutics text, Invitation to Biblical Interpretation. Dr. Kostenberger, why don't you remind our listeners, what is the basic premise of your text? Jimmy, when you think of the task of interpreting the Bible, we're dealing with God's revelation in history through a variety of texts collected in form of a canon. Uh, therefore, interpreting Scripture involves three major areas. Uh, theology, uh, because the Bible is God's revelation, His self-disclosure to us as to who He is and what His purpose is for us in this world. Uh, history, that is, the historical and cultural setting in which God's revelation has come down to us in the individual books of the Bible, uh, both Old and New Testament, and literature or stories which involve studying the different genres represented in Scripture and dealing with figurative language, other characteristics of a text uh, which has come down, have come down to us in the original Greek and Hebrew or Aramaic and which most of us read in a good English translation. Uh, as you know, I call this a uh, threefold approach to Scripture, the hermeneutical triad of history, literature, and theology. And uh, studying literature, in turn, involves the dimensions of uh, canon, uh, genre, and language. So you have the, the, the major macro triad, if you will, and then uh, you might call this the, the micro or literary triad of, of, of canon, genre, and language. Yeah, I'm glad you uh, introduced the hermeneutical triad to us. And um, let's turn to your second edition um, of Invitation to Biblical Interpretation more specifically. Now, the first edition was published almost 10 years ago, so I'm sure one main goal was to keep your book updated in light of recent research and scholarship. What else is new in the second edition? Yes, well, uh, working on new editions is always very exciting because it gives you an opportunity to strengthen the work uh, while updating it and to add important new material and discussions, uh, in part based on feedback you've received uh, through reviews and from students and teachers who've been using the, the book as a text. Um, so, for example, uh, chapter two, which is the main chapter in history, uh, we reworked very thoroughly and updated it in light of the latest scholarship in chronology, biblical chronology, which is very important, and archaeology. Um, I'm very grateful in this regard for input I received from uh, Andrew Steinman and Roger Young on chronology, uh, two of the world's leading experts in that. Uh, area, and also from my good friend David Chapman, uh, Covenant Seminary on Archaeology. He's one of the main editors of ESV Archaeology Study Bible. So I would, I would uh, especially commend Chapter 2 in history uh, as absolutely vital and even cutting edge for, for students and interpreters of Scripture. I agree. I think it's vital to base our interpretation on a solid grasp of history, um, as we discussed even on the first part of uh, this series on hermeneutics mm -hmm. in our podcast. What about chapter three on the OT canon? I believe this chapter is uh, completely new. That's correct. Uh, very exciting. Chapter uh, three is, is, is uh, totally fresh. 
contributed by my uh, close friend, Greg Goswell, a leading scholar on the canon, and in particular on the Old Testament canon, who teaches in Sydney, Australia. Uh, Greg and I, incidentally, are also currently uh, working on a new biblical theology, which will be published by Crossway in the next few years. So this is part of an ongoing uh, partnership uh, between Greg and I. Very grateful uh, to him for contributing that that new chapter. The the chapter on the Old Testament canon in the first edition uh, was good, but it was a bit more thematic in nature. So uh, we've actually used some of that material for the chapter on biblical theology. Uh, but in the new chapter three, then the focus is on the canonical framework for interpreting the Old Testament, how the Old Testament canon was put together, in particular the Hebrew order of the canon, which, mm-hmm. as you know, differs from the, the Greek order, uh, the law, the, uh, uh, the prophets, the writings, uh, and of course the, the, the Greek order, the Septuagint order, is the one that's found in our English Bibles. So our English Bibles actually use a different order uh, than the standard a Hebrew Bible, and Greg is is sensitive to to the differences and and uh, to the respective advantages of reading uh, the Old Testament books in the Hebrew uh, uh, versus the the Greek order. Now, uh, probably realize that there are some scholars who who strongly favor the Hebrew order and uh, argue that it should replace the the Greek or English order. Mm-hmm. But uh, but Greg and 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 we contend that you can read. Old Testament profitably in either order. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds very interesting. It seems like a, a very significant contribution to this uh, second edition. I'll also be very interested to see how you and Greg develop this more fully in your biblical theology, uh, which is forthcoming with Crossway. What other significant changes or adjustments have you made in your hermeneutics text over against the first edition? Well, uh, one thing that um, I did quite a bit is talk to professors who used the first edition, and as a result, um, I decided to take most of the material in the chapter on figurative language, which didn't come until late in the book. Uh, it used to be in chapter 13 or 14, and moved it mostly to chapter 6 on Old Testament poetry and wisdom. So in this way, uh, as uh, for teachers who teach uh, using the hermeneutics text in the classroom, they're able to equip students to deal with figurative language as they're interpreting Old Testament wisdom literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way, the, the, the chapter on theology in the first edition was essentially on biblical theology. So in this new edition, uh, I added a discussion of the relationship between biblical and systematic theology. Um, added a certain amount of material on systematic theology as well, uh, lest we give the impression that that uh, biblical theology is the only kind of uh, theology there is, which we don't believe that. We believe that uh, biblical and systematic theology are both uh, very important. Uh, we just uh, recommend uh, certain sequencing, starting with biblical and then moving into systematic theology. Uh, And in that uh, theology chapter, um, we also added a discussion on the role of the Old Testament in believers' lives, uh, because uh, that's something that I'm often asked to speak on, and it's such a 
an important yet controversial subject, the continuing uh, role of, of the Old Testament, uh, Ten Commandments and so forth, the uh, Old Testament ethics. And uh, we also have a new section on important Old and New Testament themes. So that, that chapter on uh, biblical theology it has been very significantly expanded. Mm-hmm. It sounds like both chapters on history and on theology were significantly reworked and enhanced in many ways. Yeah, that's, that's true, especially since those are the only chapters uh, on, on history and theology that seem to be very uh, important. Uh, but, you know, the area that I'm probably most excited about is the last chapter on application and proclamation. Mm -hmm. Now, in the first edition, uh, I had significant help from a colleague, but in the new edition, I significantly reworked and recast the material, and about half the chapter is is entirely new. Uh, The material on preaching uh, benefited greatly from input from uh, my friend and colleague, Abe Coravilla, Mm -hmm. who teaches at uh, Dallas Seminary. We've had a podcast with him uh, before, uh, and so I was, I was deeply grateful that he read that chapter, and uh, I think uh, anyone reading it will will, will see the, mm-hmm. the significant the reference to uh, his groundbreaking work. Uh, in addition, I wrote a brand new discussion um, on application, uh, where I break down application genre by genre. Mm-hmm. So uh, I discuss how to apply Old Testament narrative, wisdom literature, prophecy, uh, as well as how to apply material from the Gospels, how to apply parables, epistles, apocalyptic. Uh, I'm not aware of a similar treatment in any other hermeneutics text that, that breaks uh, down application genre by genre. So it's my hope that preachers, teachers, and students of Scripture will be well-equipped, especially by the discussion in the last critical chapter of this text, as James reminds us, we want to be doers of the Word, not hearers only. And so that's where that last chapter is so absolutely vital. It sounds like the text will have not just abiding value for um, delving into a tough issue with uh, the philosophy of biblical Mm -hmm. interpretation, but also some practical value as well. Uh, As we close, can you perhaps give us an example of how the hermeneutical triad works in practice? I'm sure preachers and teachers and students of God's Word would greatly uh, appreciate a practical example. Absolutely. What a great idea. Uh, I, I agree. That's, that's so important to flesh that out. And uh, in, I think, our, our previous podcast on, on hermeneutics, I gave a New Testament example from Mark chapter 2. So let me mm-hmm. give you an Old Testament example uh, this time, and then we'll have examples from both Testaments. <laughs> Uh, and so let's take a look at the book of Esther, which is uh, one of my favorite Old Testament books. Uh, it's, a, it's a great story. It's very well told and contains just incredible uh, spiritual lessons. Uh, now, from a historical standpoint, the, the story is set during the reign of the Persian ruler Xerxes, mentioned right at the beginning. Uh, and we know that uh, he reigned in the uh, 5th century B.C., um, around... Uh, 486 to 465 BC, which, as you as you look at it and try to place it uh, in in the biblical chronology, right, which is what chapter two is all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's after Cyrus's decree, the Persian ruler, um, and the return from exile of a remnant, 
but it's just before Ezra and Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. Of course, Nehemiah's date is uh, is uh, uh, 444 BC, and I think Ezra's is uh, 458. So uh, it's helpful to understand at what point in salvation history that the Book of Esther takes place. Now, on a literary level, the main character uh, being Esther, uh, a, a heroine, uh, as well as her cousin Mordecai, and then the villain of a story, every good story needs a villain, uh, is a man, man named Haman. Now, the author mentions that Haman was a descendant of Agag, the uh, king of the Amalekites, uh, with whom King Saul had done battle with uh, previously. So that's uh, Esther chapter 3, verse 1. And, you know, that's easy to miss. I, I missed it the first a dozen times I read through the book, but I, I forget. I think it might have been a study Bible or, or somewhere where I, I saw a reference to it. And so I turned to 1 Samuel 15, and sure enough, uh, there uh, Saul is, is, is told to uh, decisively defeat the Amalekites, but, but because Saul disobeyed God and, and failed to utterly uh, defeat uh, the Amalekites, uh, I think the author of Esther is 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 subtly pointing uh, out that uh, it's as if Israel is still paying for the sins of Saul, uh, because if, if Saul had vanquished the Amalekites, as he was told, there, you know, humanly speaking, there would have been no Haman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a good example of how it's vital for us to pick up the the historical clues that are left for us right there in the biblical text. Uh, itself. You don't have to import that uh, from extra-biblical history at all. It's the author telling us, pointing us to earlier scripture. Then on a literary level, uh, where he touched on the main characters and Haman as the villain, uh, Esther, very interestingly, is a story of banquets. Again, something that, you know, you might not notice the first uh, time you read it, but when you reread it a few times, I think you begin to notice, you know, there's just a consistent uh, string of, I mean, introduction. Uh, You have a series of three banquets that ends up with King Xerxes uh, deposing uh, Queen uh, Vashti and replacing her with Esther. And then uh, the body of the book uh, has three additional banquets involving Esther. Uh, and those banquets uh, take place against the backdrop of Haman's deadly plot. And finally, the book closes with with final banquets, narrating the establishment of the Feast of Purim and the promotion of uh, Mordecai. And it appears in some way, the whole book is really written to give a little bit of a background to uh, Purim as a biblical feast. Now, uh, picking up those literary Cues, like I mentioned on the historical cues, uh, especially uh, regarding these series of banquets, is, is vital for discerning the literary structure of the book. So in many ways, what, what I'm advocating in the Hermetical Triad is just to engage in a very close reading of the text from those three different angles, the historical angle, mm-hmm. uh, in this case, Esther 3, 1 in particular, the uh, literary angle to, to discern the multiple the series of banquets, and then finally, uh, even though God is not mentioned explicitly anywhere in the book, uh, theologically, uh, his hand is everywhere, behind the scenes, as, as we can see in a, in a, in a series of, of, you know, what you and I might 
look at, quote-unquote, as coincidences. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, Xerxes is, is not able to sleep, and so he's, he's reminded of Mordecai's previous help, which has gone unrewarded, and that turns out to be a, a pivotal moment in the whole story. Uh, also, and I think this is really fascinating and, and vital to connect Esther canonically to other Old Testament, you know, preceding books, uh, the author connects Esther with important uh, preceding figures uh, in salvation history, such as Joseph or Moses. God used both of these men to deliver his people, uh, just as he used Esther, uh, who be raised up for in that signature verse for such a time as this. Mm-hmm. And so in this way, I believe the author presents Esther as a female deliverer in the trajectory of Joseph and Moses. I mean, how significant is that? Uh, I could go on, but I I think you can see how using that triadic model of of history, literature, and theology can can really help you unpack the the message of a biblical book such as Esther in a remarkable and and very straightforward and, and simple way. I think that's very helpful. Um, I, on one hand, we can think of the hermeneutical tri- triad not so much as a method, a step-by-step method, but maybe more as a lens. Mm-hmm. Would you say is that more accurate? Absolutely. Well, I think um, that illustration serves us very well, and I hope uh, this episode helps us understand uh, the value of hermeneutics as well as the uh, approach that you're uh, taking here through the hermeneutical triad. So thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome, Jimmy. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, please also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Please join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.